news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Applications are now open for Author Accelerator's 2022 Manuscript Incubator, where 16 writers will get seven months of one-on-one book coaching through a revision and the opportunity to present their revised manuscript to a panel of agents and publishers. To celebrate applications opening up and to give you an idea of how a book coach can help you with the revision process, Author Accelerator is hosting a free online workshop on July 8th called Ready, Set, Revise, How to Plan and Revise a Novel or Memoir. If you're ready to tackle a revision head on and you want some added support, head to authoraccelerator.com slash manuscript hyphen incubator to learn more about the incubator and to save your spot for this summer's free event. everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. We're using our new format today in which Carly and Cece are each looking at two different query letters. Remember for the rest of you, if you would like to submit, please go to the website, theshitaboutwriting.com. There is a page there in which you can submit your work. We are accepting new submissions. And if you have revised work that perhaps you submitted quite a few months ago that wasn't selected, feel free to resubmit your work for that. 
that. Right, we're going to start now with Carly kicking it off. Carly? Dear Ms. Weber, I'm looking for representation for my complete novel, Unreasonable Doubt, an 84,000-word psychological mystery. Privileged people in Seattle are dying, and the city is terrorized. As much as the realization that a serial killer is at work, the prominence of the victims adds to the fear. The level of terror and outrage increases when the murderer, who calls himself Joseph, sends letters to the media promising more killings. Joseph writes that the victims deserve to be killed because they were self-entitled, takers from society. Nathan Moore, a man with limited resources and no family, is eventually identified as the suspect. Because Moore is indignant, Sam Golding, the senior attorney at the public defender's office, is assigned to the defense. Golding has a lot in common with Nathan Moore. He doesn't have a family and has few friends. He has lived with personal slights and professional dismissals his entire life. With the Nathan Moore case, Golding believes he has found a way to silence his critics and exact payback for the ridicule he has endured. Moore knows his fate rests in Sam Golding's hands. What Moore cannot know is that his defense attorney committed the crimes he is accused of. Golding has devised a twisted plan to show that he is smarter than his, all his detractors, and at the same time expose the inequities in the judicial system. Golding plans to manipulate the execution of an innocent man and then reveal the truth to the world. Unreasonable Doubt will appeal to adult readers who enjoyed books like 13 by Stephen Kavanaugh, Kill All Your Darlings by David Bell, and House of Correction by Nikki French. I am a collector and avid reader of most genres. My work has been published in Whatcom Writes and Local Literary Journal. I also serve on the board of directors of Hugo House, Seattle's premier writers organization. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Tim Shea. Awesome, Carly. Okay, what was your take on that, Miss Weber? I assume this is going to a different agent and that is perfectly fine. There's an agent called Carly Weber, I'm pretty sure. So that maybe that's where it's headed. Okay, so I'm trying to balance here a couple things when I'm when I'm analyzing this. I'm trying to balance the plot and sympathy. Like I don't like characters to be like I don't need characters to be likable per se, but we do just need a certain level of sympathy. And so what I'm trying to figure out is where does the sympathy lie and where does our connection to this lie. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to balance here. So number one, I think our our opening line is too vague. It just says privileged people in Seattle are dying and the city is terrorized. Okay. And then we kind of lead into just generalizations, really. Like we don't have any connection to the victims. The only person that is mentioned here is the killer, which we don't have any sympathy for this person. So I'm feeling very distant. And what this creates is a lot of distance between me and me and this work. And really what I really want to be is pulled in. So the way that I would do this is I would kind of start with a hook line about the killings themselves and the consequences and stakes of those murders and then launch into our main character and then perhaps get back into the Joseph stuff. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know the exact formula here, but but I feel like we're, we're missing that, that ability to kind of pull the reader in for a certain level of sympathy. And so then we move on to the next paragraph. And then I'm just kind of in general confused about who the main character is. Is it Nathan Moore? Is it Sam Golding? You know, is it this Joseph character? Like, who is the main character here. I'm still not really clear on that. And then in the last body paragraph, we get into this cat and mouse game where you kind of show your whole hand here um, and you're kind of spilling the beans. And so again, I'm a little torn on this because on the one hand, it shows the level of sophistication of the plot. But in this, on the other hand, really, this is more something that probably belongs in a synopsis and not really in a query letter, even though clearly like this, this is a really exciting twist. So it's really impossible for me to read the manuscript with, you know, we call it like a cold read or something like that, you know, we're coming to it blindly. It's really hard for me to read this 
the coming pages cold because I know what this twist is. So I'm having a bit of a, a bit of a hard time kind of wrapping my head around who I'm supposed to be rooting for, what I'm supposed to look forward to, what's hooking me because a lot of it is either on the page or there's no sympathy for what is on the page and we're not creating the, that level of sympathy. So those are, those are some of my, my concerns here. I think you picked really, really good comps. I really like these comps. They're really well reviewed, really popular, but not, you know, too popular, which I think was really, really great. And, and this seems overall really interesting. Like I, I like the idea of this twist. I just don't think I like that I'm being told the twist. And I think that's the, the thing that I'm having, um, I, I'm struggling a little bit with. So, so that's where this one lands for me. Yeah. So difficult striking that balance between not giving enough in the query letter and giving away too much. And we feel your pain. It is really, really tough. Okay. Carly, can you give us a take of what was in those opening pages before you critique them? All right. So we open with a character named Joseph who has thought about killing for a long time. We learn about his kind of obsession with it, how he's really looking forward to when he gets to kill somebody, basically. And so he is walking around Seattle. There's a thing called Seafair right now, which we kind of imagine to be a downtown kind of bustling market type of style. He's walking through Pike Place. He's kind of watching everything going on in society. He's watching just a lot of negative things in society. He's watching, you know, these sailors who are preying on some young young women. Um, and we're just getting like a distaste for humanity kind of at this point. And he's building up to selecting basically who he's going to murder that night. Then he kind of finds who he wants to kill. It's this guy who like has a Rolex as being like really mean to everybody, you know, at this tavern. So he's kind of sitting back in the corner watching. The man gets kicked out of one bar. He follows him to the next bar. And eventually these two are kind of alone on the street. And we can see our, our killer character kind of trying to lure him into the moment where he murders him. Wonderful. Okay, what was your take on it? Oh, right. So I think for this one, I felt pretty much similar to the way that I did in the query letter. I really liked that we were painting this this really dark side of humanity. I really liked that because I'm talking about sympathy, right? Not necessarily likability. And so with the sympathy element, I like that you were kind of talking about this, these dark corners of, of civilization and humanity that you're kind of, this character is witnessing these, these dark sides, which eventually is kind of building up to hopefully kind of enlightening us about why he's potentially doing what he's doing. The one thing I couldn't quite figure out was as this character is walking through this market, the seafair, he's saying people are kind of looking at him a certain way or dismissing him, not really like seeing him. And he, t this character talks all about like what other people are wearing, what other people are doing, but we don't really get a sense of what he is doing and what he's wearing. They, uh, there's one line that says he saw the way people looked at him and the way they rolled their eyes. Like, I don't know what he would be doing or wearing to make people like literally roll their eyes at him. But at a certain point, I really feel like it is really beautifully written. You know, we start at a point that says Joseph straightened up and moved into the flow of people on the sidewalk. At the doorway of a club, he slowed and listened to the music coming from inside. He edged closer to the door, watching writhing bodies on the dance floor, feeling the music throb in his gut. So we really do feel like we are in this character's point of view, even though it is third person, which I really thought was extremely, extremely extremely well written. There was a lot that I really liked about that second half of the sample. I think I just want to know a little bit more about that other side of who he is and, and kind of potentially why he feels that he is an outsider in society. It's one thing to tell us that as the reader, it's another to kind of see it on the page. And I do see a lot of talent here. So I, I'm sure this author is capable of that. But generally, it's it's really, really well done. There's a little bit of repetition on the first page that I made a note of. So when this author gets my notes back to them, you'll be able to see that. But I do think the pages are much stronger than the query letter. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Right, Cece, let's go to yours. 
Dear Cece, I am an avid listener and first-time author seeking representation for my debut novel. Please consider the following query letter for my novel. Set in a future where the earth has been reborn, mothers act as spiritual portals, and midwives guide spirits from the ancestral realm to their flesh bodies, When Fire Gives Birth is an adult fiction novel with science fiction fantasy elements. Coming in at 87,500 words, this work will appeal to readers of Octavia Butler, Akawaki Emezi, Gloria Naylor, and N.K. Jesmond. Comparable texts include Freshwater, Wild Seed, Mama Day, and The Fifth Season. The Vanishing Half meets Daughters of the Dust. This multiple point-of-view novel follows Sage Ami and Yuri Opari, both motherless women coming of age through motherhood. Sage is a midwife in training at Westview Village, mentored by her grandmother. After witnessing the death of the first baby she delivers, Sage must choose to quit her midwifery training or continue her training by facing her greatest fear, learning to navigate the magical time-traveling willow tree to which her clan is bound. When Sage experiences yet another loss and discovers she is pregnant, she learns the only way to move forward is to look back. She must brave the Time River alone. Only then will she be able to access her ancestors and gather the many lessons she needs to master midwifery and her ancestral magic. Yuri is a dancer and partner in Riverside Village. After losing her first child, she struggles to regain confidence to attempt motherhood again. When she meets a stranger in a tea house who offers to take her under their wing, Yuri discovers the magic her body holds. As their relationship deepens, Yuri finds the strength to not only carry a child again, but reimagine what family can look like. I'm Amber Nicole, mother of two sets of twins, birth doula, and writer based in Louisville, Kentucky. I earned a BA in Pan-African Studies and English with a focus on African-American literature. I have co-founded two choreo poetry groups, both centering feminism, queerness, and social justice. Two of my essays have been published in local digital magazines, but my fiction is seeing the light of day for the very first time. My writing is informed by my experiences as a black, southern, queer woman and mother who dabbles in herbalism. Thank you for your consideration. Great, Cece. Thank you. What was your take on that? There's a lot to unpack in this query letter. I assume that something happened to the title because there's like the very first sentence, sorry, the second sentence is, please consider the following query letter for my novel, comma, and then there's like a blank space. So I assume this was just the typo, which is, you know, I, I know that happens. But yeah, so when you're revising this, make sure to add, you know, the title and all the book metadata, like the word count, comps, etc. I feel like you can bring that up and make that into just one paragraph and just really tighten the, the flow here. Small things, make sure to write your title in all caps. Italics are also okay. I personally prefer all caps, but it just helps with the readability. You can also round up your word count just because that way the flow is better. You don't have the, the comma and five, zero, zero. These small things go a long way in query letters. I also, when it comes to the comps, there are there's way too much information here. Comps are really one of those things where if you tell me too many, it's almost worse than not telling me any at all because the job of comparable titles is to position your book in a way that I immediately understand the space that it would be in on a bookshelf or, you know, the competition in terms of if you love this type of author, then you'll love this one too. And there's just way too much here. 
And I understand there are many wonderful books out there. So probably you were like, I want to reference all of them, but I don't think that's in your best interest. I would just keep the vanishing half meets Daughters of the Dust because I felt that that was the strongest sentence. Now, obviously I have not read your novel, so only do that if, if it's the best description of where your novel would sit on a bookshelf. Also, when you mention these other titles, again, italicize them because you, you, you want the readability to work. Um, I had trouble reading this out loud just because nothing was italicized or in all caps. And so I had to, you know, my, my brain reads way too many query letters. So this really does help. Let's talk about plot paragraph, which is again, in my opinion, the most important part of a query letter. I like that we're, we're critiquing this because I feel like, I hope that this will be useful to many, many listeners, not just the very generous author who shared this with us. I read this out loud, right? So people know that there's a sentence that says that Sage must choose to quit her midwifery training or continue her training by facing her greatest fear, um, learning to navigate the magical time traveling willow tree to which her clan is bound. So clearly this is a book in which there is a lot of world building. That's fine. That's great, actually, because that's that's what you want to write. So the problem, though, is that I don't know enough about this world to understand if, you know, navigating the magical willow tree to which her clan is bound carries inherent stakes. Was she not expecting to have to do this? Was she expecting to have to do this, but later on in her career? Is this something that only like the elders do? I don't know. Was she not expecting to have to do it alone? Is it typically something where a group of people go and they have like community support? I don't understand if it's even a surprise to her. So, like, does it label her as other? Does it label her as less than among her peers, thus causing her to feel, I don't know, insecurity, like some type of emotionality? So I understand that it's a challenge writing the plot for a world-building heavy story in a query letter that has to be like 400 words. Like, I, I totally get it. Um, One way that, one thing that I think is really important and really non-negotiable when you do it, though, is that the inherent stakes, the inherent emotionality and stakes have to be there. So one thing that I think could be useful to you is conveying not just the active emotions she's experiencing, because right now you're only mentioning the passive ones, but also the context, the social familial ties and how that context matters. I mentioned the line about, you know, learning to navigate the magical time traveling willow tree, but this is true in other lines too, like brave the time river alone. Again, I don't know, was she not expecting to have to do it alone? Is it something that, that she could die from? I don't know what that means. And so because I don't know enough about your story, it doesn't land in any way that makes me fear or root for the protagonist. When it comes to Yuri's plot paragraph, like Yuri discovers the magic her body holds. Is this literal? Is it unexpected? Is the magic preserved for a few precious few? Is it outlawed? Like I need to have a clearer hold on this again so it can land in a way that makes me feel curious because that's the query letter's job, right? Like sparking curiosity. As well, based on the very last line of Yuri's plot paragraph, and really the whole plot paragraph, but this was solidified in the last line, her arc seems quite internal. And I'm wondering, is this intentional? I also want to end by saying that, like, your author paragraph is so cool. I don't know what choreo poetry groups are, but now I want to know. And I'm going to look that up because whatever it is, I'm, I'm into it. So thank you for sharing. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. All right. Can you give us an indication what's in those opening pages and then give us your critique of it? So the protagonist, Sage, arrives at a cottage alone. Before she can knock, the door flies open. Elder Sula is on the other side of the doorframe. She's ready to welcome Sage and Rose, but Rose isn't there. Rose is the experienced midwife. She sent Sage, her apprentice, alone. 
And Sula doesn't seem too pleased about this, but, you know, soon Sage is walking into the house and meeting her first mother as a midwife, who, you know, who's called Yuri. And Yuri is also confused to see Sage there alone, but Sage makes her feel at ease and promises her that everything's going to be okay. There's a scene break, and the baby has been born. And at first, the baby seems to be doing so well, cooing and latching onto the mother. But then the mother notices something's wrong, and... Sage checks and the baby has passed away. There's another scene break and we get Sage's interiority where, you know, she's thinking that all she wants to do is run away and thinking about Yuri's pain. And then she remembers that Sula would want her to stay. And so she does stay. So that is what happens. In terms of notes. So this is going to be a tough one to critique. <laughs> um, I did have a few line notes that I shared. You'll get my notes. You know, anyone who subscribes to our Kofi account will get to see that too. Things like, you know, a comma was missing and I didn't know if that was intentional. And I felt like you didn't need the italics because we were already in first person clothes and I didn't feel like the italics were adding anything to the story. But really, my big picture note is that there's two things missing from the pages and they're actually the same two things missing from the query letter. Number one, it's emotionality. I don't understand how she's feeling, and I should because I'm in her head. She just arrived. This is a, this is a, an important moment in her life, right? Like Sage just arrived, and it's her first time being a midwife and not an apprentice. The person who opens the door is clearly not happy that she's alone. The mother is clearly not happy that she's alone. And yet we get very little about her emotions. We get certain types of body reactions, like she's clearly nervous, like with her breath especially, but that's it. We get nothing else. And I wanted to know, is the scrutiny making her feel insecure? And does that insecurity manifest itself as, you know, does she steal herself and think, no, you got this, you've been working on this for so long, you're capable, or does she doubt herself? Because she does soothe the mother so well, right? Like her actions are written in a way that are super clear. I just wanted her interiority to add a new layer to whatever was going on. Because again, that is that is the wonderful thing about a book. I get to see inside someone's head. I just want her emotionality to go deeper, you know, deeper beyond beyond breath, beyond other body reactions because to me there's so much that we could be learning about her character based on her emotions and then the second thing is tied to emotionality but is quite different in terms of execution it's the social familial context of what she is doing for example she after the baby is born and you know while the baby is still squealing in delight or i think it's yuri who's squealing in delight is she thinking to herself, you know, wait till I go back and I tell everyone the great job I did. You know, I'm going to be so proud. Or is she thinking, you know, I'm going to, the first person I'm going to tell is so-and-so. I, I wanted context on her life because I know this is Yuri's moment. Yuri is the mother. But let's face it, we're in the, we're in Sage's head and this is a big deal for Sage. This is a job. And when you're doing a job for the first time, especially a job that means so much to you, you're also thinking about yourself, right? Like you're also going, I can't wait to tell my mom or I can't wait to tell my partner. Or, I, I don't know, again, I don't know enough about her life to, to know who she would be thinking about, but I wanted that. I wanted more emotionality and more context on what this means from her, especially since there is a disruption where the baby does unfortunately pass away. The pages end with, the empathy I attempted to suppress was released. And this empathy has to do with Yuri. There's a beautiful line about a blanket that Yuri wove for the baby. It's, it's so well written, but none of it is about Sage. So, for example, in that sentence, it's not just empathy, though, is it? Of course, there's empathy for the mother who just lost her child, of course, but she's a part of this. She had just promised the mother that everything was going to be okay. 
So is she feeling responsible? Is she feeling anger towards Sula for letting her do this alone? Is she resenting Sula? Is she angry at herself for convincing Sula if she convinced Sula to let her do this alone? Again, because I don't have context, I can't understand or anticipate the emotions or be there with her. So that's my note. It's really all about interiority. You're doing a great job of the exterior stuff. It's just more things to to layer on to, to your pages. I hope this was helpful. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. All right, Carly, let's go to your next query letter. Dear Carly, I first discovered your agenting work back in December of 2020. Thanks to the podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, and have been a devotee of your hilarious and informative content ever since. Because you have expressed interest in well-paced novels, rich and complex characters the reader can really sink their teeth into, I believe my novel, Motel Project, is right up your alley. A multi-POV work of literary fiction with upmarket potential complete at 99,000 words, Motel Project will appeal to fans of the film Nine and a Half Weeks, Sally Rooney's Normal People, and Taylor Jenkins reads The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, a project I know you worked tirelessly on. After her best friend Carolyn is murdered by the son of a prominent artist, New York City art dealer Samantha Breedlove is devastated. She clings to her tumultuous, decades-long affair with award-winning photojournalist J.R. Johnson with renewed intensity. But when the killer is found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity, Samantha's grief-fueled rage drives her to retaliate against those who aided this miscarriage of justice. She is caught in the act in order to pay a six-figure restitution within the year or else serve 18 months in prison. With days remaining before the court-mandated deadline in a major art sale on the horizon that would settle her debt, an anonymous source leaks racy photos of Samantha to the tabloids, revealing her illicit affairs with powerful art world men. The consequent scandal sends her fickle client running and demolishes her reputation in the process. Samantha's relationship with J.R. is further complicated by the advances of a handsome young traveler from Spain who Airbnbs her guest room. Javier knows nothing of the capricious art market nor the scandal, offering a timely distraction from the dumpster fire her life's become. The misogynistic art world demands she pay her pound of flesh in shame and humiliation, but with Javier's help, Samantha sees there may be another path to redemption. Tell the truth about the photos about JR at the risk of destroying the life and career of the only man she's ever loved. I have worked for over a decade as a curator specializing in the public art at NYU, as well as for contemporary art galleries, and my writing is informed by experiences inside the often salacious art world. Following a great literary tradition of writers who got the hell out of New York City, I reside on a lake in the Catskills with my husband and our adorable rat terrier rescue named Enzo, who we really thought would have gotten bigger by now. Thank you very much for your consideration. Pamela Jean Tinnen. Awesome, Carly. Thanks. What was your take on that? Okay, so we have a work of literary fiction with upmarket potential. I would definitely call this literary fiction. I'm not going to kind of get into the pages here, obviously, at this time, but based on everything I've seen in the query letter and the pages, I would I would say this is literary fiction. The title, Motel Project. I have no idea where the title is going to come from based on what I have read both in the query letter and the pages, unless this is where the photos are taken, you know, this anonymous racy photos that are taken. Maybe that's where the photos were taken. That's why it's called Motel Project. I don't know. I don't think that this title necessarily does this justice. I would like to see a more art world title, I think, maybe to kind of tie that in. The other thing is we don't have any art world comps. So I'm a little bit, again, confused on why they're missing. You know, this seems very important and key to the entire book itself. So I would try to find an art world, a literary art world comp to kind of pull that in. I don't think 
that Seven Hunts of Hevel and Hugo is a comp here. I'm assuming the person put it in there because it is a book that I sold. So maybe they're just trying to kind of show that they they know what I work on. That's fine. Of all the projects I've sold, I wouldn't say that this would be the one that I would tie to this query letter. It's completely fine just to say that you have read other my clients' projects. Like there's a million other ways, I think, to say that you know who I am and you know what I'm about without putting in a comp for a book that doesn't really fit this one. Okay, so and now moving on to the body paragraph here. So one of the questions I have is, we have Samantha's grief-fueled rage drives her to retaliate against those. We don't know how she retaliates. And I think that's kind of important because she is caught in the act, again, we don't know of what, uh, in order to pay a six-figure restitution or serve 18 months in prison. This sounds very serious. And yet we don't know what this act is. And it seems pretty important to me because there's such high stakes involving this. So I think we need to know what the retaliation is, I would say. Next paragraph, I really like with the day's remaining paragraph. I think that's great. And I also think the next paragraph is really interesting. You know, when we're talking about advances of the handsome young traveler, like we have a lot of lot going on here for a literary novel to have this much plot. Love it. Obsessed with it. Great. (laughs) Totally up my alley. I like when we have a lot going on in a literary novel. I think the author bio paragraph is also excellent, a little bit voicey, which we love. One thing I wanted to note is that there was a track changes comment from somebody in the margins, which I'm assuming based on what I see of the comment, clearly somebody was critiquing your query letter for you. So just letting you know, you know, clean up those track changes, save it in a different file, whatever you have to do to get rid of that. It doesn't put me off necessarily based on what I've seen, but it's a little bit cringy. So let's try to get rid of those, obviously. Awesome, Carly. Thanks. All right. What was in those opening pages? All right. We have a lot going on in these opening pages. Again, for a literary novel, um, you know, we got some juicy stuff here. So we open with Carolyn. We have one page of her. It starts, as I lay dying, I dreamt of the ocean. And this is her reflecting, presumably on the last day of her life. On the next page, we have Samantha and we have a section of her life. And she is this art gallery woman. She has been negotiating all day with some with an artist and, you know, she's been negotiating her commission. So on her commute home, she's just all up in her head about the about whether she made the right decision. We have a very cinematic kind of view of New York City as she's commuting home from Manhattan to Queens. So we got a really kind of New York City energy there. Then we jump to Javier in um, Norfolk, Virginia. This scene is, I think Javier is kind of like 17 to 21 year old boy, I would call him at that point, is a very graphic sex scene between him and his lover partner as he is kind of getting ready to pack up his things and head to New York City. This is presumably the young man that I'm assuming in the query letter she essentially has an affair with. Maybe this is the boy or the man that takes her Airbnb. That's kind of the sense I'm getting. And then we jump back to Samantha and she's made it home from her commute back to Queens. So those are our pages. Wonderful. And what did you think of them? Okay. So first of all, as I said, with literary fiction, the fact that there is so much happening here, love it. Just absolutely love the amount of just content we have to work with. Right off the bat, so we have the line which I said was, as I lay dying, I dreamt of the ocean. An obvious Faulkner reference. Love Faulkner. Loved as I lay dying. But we use it twice. So that kind of just like, oh, we don't need to use it twice. Two paragraphs later, again, as they lay dying, I longed for the feeling. So if you're going to use a Faulkner reference, if you're going to use something like that, let's just use it once, especially once on one page. The only other thing I have for critique on this first page is that 
it reminds me a little bit a couple weeks ago when we talked on the podcast about overwriting and people are always like, what does overwriting mean to you? And, and Bianca and Cece and I had a great conversation about overwriting. This reminds me a lot of that because the thing about literary fiction is that we need to leave room for these beautiful sentences to breathe. And we, when we jam pack like beautiful sentence, beautiful sentence, beautiful sentence, right? It feels like maybe one, you're trying to show off that you can write a beautiful sentence. Great. But in terms of actual like literary device, in terms of bringing in a reader, attracting interest into your manuscript, it doesn't do the job because it's like a little bit distracting, the fact that you're just piling on all this. So in the line notes, I, I made some examples of what I would cut, some repetition, I would cut the last paragraph. So the author will see my notes on that. Okay, now we're moving, it says 18 months later, we're moving to Samantha, who is our art curator character. Again, trying to be literary, I think. We're, this is a draft, right? We're like, we're trying everything out. That's the whole point of the show. You come on the show, you give us our words, and we critique them. So I think most of this is working. But again, when you get my line notes, you'll see, for example, something that didn't work for me was this author is using kind of really eye-catching and visceral language, I think, to just juxtapose that discomfort within us. So I'll give you some examples. So this says, our correspondence's vicious cycle leaves me frustrated and feeling impotent. Impotent is a very interesting word choice for a female character. And that was just a bit like, huh, okay, that's a, that's a word that you chose there. Okay, you know, th those are the kind of words that were that are jarring. Uh, next paragraph, we have I dodge shadowy pedestrians navigating an obstacle course of dog shit and black ice. Again, dog shit, right? Where it's like, okay, you know, there's obviously other words we can use for that. But the, the author chose to use dog shit here, right? So we're trying to be, we're trying to use a lot of juxtaposition with elegant language mixed with profanity. So it's a choice. It's a choice. It's definitely jarring. And I think, again, this is intentional because when we get to this Javier character who's having this kind of graphic sex scene with his partner on the back of this like art world art business woman again like this this novel seems like it's all about this juxtaposition and trying to make the reader uncomfortable which i think it does so i just want to let you know if that is the goal which i think that's the goal making the reader uncomfortable with these juxtapositions and word choices you're doing a great job because it definitely gave me a lot to think about are we using the right word here you know are we transitioning at the right point is that discomfort intentional yes okay then we're gonna go with it so one of the things that i think we need to know a little bit more clearly throughout this whole manuscript is how old everybody is i was just a little bit confused in the query letter, it says, you know, she's had a decades long affair. So I'm assuming she is maybe in her like 40s, 50s, not sure. And then we get to this, I'm calling him a, a boy, like I'm imagining him to be about 17 to 21. Obviously, you're a man at that point, I guess. But he just seems young to me in the way that he's speaking. And I would like to know how old he is as well. So I think I would just like that to be a little bit more obvious. But overall, I think this juxtaposition and, and jarring language and, and all of that makes me just think about who the audience for this book is. And definitely, that's why I come back to the fact that this is definitely, definitely literary fiction and makes me think that, you know, we definitely need to work on the, the comps for this because it just doesn't seem like they're really kind of encapsulating it the way that it should be. One of the things I will say that this these pages did really, really, really well is they felt very cinematic to me. Like I very much felt like in every scene I was there. So in the, the overwriting isn't in the description of the world. The overwriting sometimes is just in layering a little bit too much with the actual thoughts of the character. So for literary fiction, I think we're doing a great job. You know, I, I again, that discomfort is there. And I think you're using it wisely. I just want you to be aware that that's kind of the vibe that I'm getting and the energy I'm getting. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Right, Cece, let's go to our last query letter. Manuscript content warning. 
terminal illness, religious abuse, allusions to physical abuse, and suicide. Dear Cece, I cannot thank you and Carly and Bianca enough for creating a podcast at the intersection of my two favorite things, reading and swearing. Since you've posted that you're looking for stories with morally ambiguous protagonists and dysfunctional families, I thought you might be interested in my 75,000-word debut literary novel, Redacted, which explores how the ramifications of religious abuse can lead to complicity in wrongdoing and fracture a family through decades. It will appeal to readers who enjoyed the epistolary style of Ocean Vuong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous and the strained mother-daughter dynamic in Avni Dashi's Burnt Sugar. Ruth's daughter has come home to Houston to die. She's been diagnosed with late-stage pancreatic cancer, and nothing Ruth says can persuade her to try a treatment with low odds of success. Zoe's approaching death and the daily reminders of their difficult relationship force Ruth to grapple with her own upbringing in a fundamentalist Mississippi church and her deep-held secret, Zoe is adopted, and the truth behind her adoption could land Ruth in prison. As Zoe's condition deteriorates, Ruth scrambles to keep her life compartmentalized and her secret buried. When an old family friend sees Zoe for the first time in years and threatens to expose a truth that would begin to unravel Ruth's lies, Ruth must decide what to tell Zoe and decide whether telling the whole truth is worth the possibility of her dying daughter hating her at the end. I'm an investigative reporter for Redacted in Redacted, covering Redacted. I have won statewide awards in Texas and New York for my writing, and I was a finalist for a national award recognizing the best journalists under 35. You can find me cooking, reading, or muttering over the New York Times crossword puzzle. My first five pages are attached. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Redacted. Okay, Cece, what did you think about that? So, I would like to start by saying thank you so much for including the content note. I so appreciate the sensitivity. In terms of the first paragraph, I have to take a moment to say that I really loved the, the first line, right? About the fact that the podcast is at the intersection of your two favorite things, reading and swearing. That was lovely and gave me a good chuckle. It's a perfect paragraph, really. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything about it or I have no notes. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. I will say, since we have time, that for our listeners is a, I guess, fun fact about me, although I'm not sure it's so fun. I am usually not a fan of epistolary novels. I think it's because as a reader, one of the main things I'm interested in is inner life and a masterfully written interiority. And it's hard to pull that off in an epistolary novel. Not impossible, but really hard. So just something about me that I'm sharing. Okay, in terms of the plot paragraph, my questions were like, is this single POV, dual POV? I assumed it was single because all we were getting is Ruth. If that's the case, then it's totally fine. Is it dual timeline? Because there's a line that says grapple with her own upbringing like is that going to be flashbacks i hope not like is it going to be dual timeline or is it just going to be so rooted in the present that that's all you'll need so that that made me curious i don't need answers to these questions in the query letter you're able if you're able to incorporate them go for it but it didn't bother me it was i'm really just sharing impressions that i had in terms of the paragraph that starts with as zoe's condition you mentioned the secret right and threatens to expose the truth that would begin to unravel ruth's lies my question is is there, this is excellent, is there a chance that this will land Ruth in prison? Because 
you finish the paragraph with her dying daughter hating her at the end, which again is very emotional, totally emotional stakes and totally okay for literary fiction. But is there also a chance that she'll have to answer for her crime? Because if so, I would add that. The thing about secrets and something that I talked about in my writing tension webinar is that secrets must carry inherent stakes with them. If someone is holding a secret and that secret could land them in jail, for example, but nobody knows about the secret, there's no chance of the secret ever coming out, there's no one after them, there's no leaks, nothing, then then honestly, who cares? Like, it's still, it's still fun for the interiority, but it's not enough to be a source of tension. And in this case, the author's doing a really good job of showing us that there is a chance of the secret coming out. So I guess I want to know if the more serious, although I'm not even sure if more serious would apply here, but if the more life-related as opposed to emotions-related consequence would also apply. I want to say that I love the author paragraph. I love that you're a fellow cruci verbalist. And anyone who watched the Tension webinar knows what that means. I didn't know before I looked it up. And yeah, and this is a great query letter. Like it's, it's essentially perfect. So thank you for writing it. Awesome. Cece? Okay. Give us an indication of what was in those opening pages. The protagonist has decided to finally make good on her intention to write letters to her daughter to be found after she, the protagonist, passes away. We don't know what the letter will say, but we know it will contain something important about her daughter's life, something her daughter does not know about. So she begins to write the letter, but stops when her cat asks for food. Her cat gets the salmon that she had seared for herself. This is not very important for the plot, but I loved it so much that I decided to mention it. A new scene begins. The protagonist is at the hospital with her daughter in a doctor's office. The doctors leave and the protagonist says she's going to the bathroom, but really she's going to intercept the doctors before they leave. One of them stays, the younger one, and she asks him to convince her daughter to get the treatment. And the doctor says there isn't anything they can do. And if the patient has refused treatment, then that's their choice. Her chances weren't good with the treatment anyway. It escalates and she threatens to sue and the doctor remains professional compassionate. There's a line break, and then the protagonist and the daughter are leaving the hospital, getting on an elevator, and another woman, who is the protagonist's age, sees them and says something like, oh, you know, it's so nice that your daughter gets to be here with you because my, my children all live far away. So obviously the woman has assumed that, the, you know, she saw the, the protagonist and her daughter and assumed that the patient was, was the protagonist because she's older. No one corrects this woman. So that is essentially what happens. Okay, great. And what was your take on it? <sighs> okay, you're gonna, there's gonna be a lot of swooning, a lot of swooning. Um, first of all, this is told in hybrid second person, which is so voicey and I just love it so much and you do it so well. By the time I finished reading the first paragraph, literally the note on the margins <laughs> reads, Ah, you can write literary fiction. I can tell by one paragraph alone that you can write literary fiction. Because it's just so, it's so voicey and crisp. And, and you know, to Carly's earlier point, there's so much room for everything to breathe. While at the same time, it's, it's so, it's so filled with, with beautiful writing and emotion. It's just, it's just amazing. I'm, I'm here. I'm gushing. It's embarrassing. I'm sorry. But it is what it is. I wanted to mention a few reasons why, a few examples of why this is so well written, because I'm sure that by now people are tired of hearing me gush without examples. So example number one, this is a line from the text. After every major disaster announced itself in red and white Chiron, I told myself I would begin. This is referring to writing the letter. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing Chiron right. It's a word I only ever read. I know what it means because I've read it before, but I've never said it. So this is a line that the author chose to write instead of after the news talked about the disasters happening in the world. 
which would be fine as a line, probably not exactly that, but the author chose to trust that the reader would figure out what disaster announcing itself in red and white Chiron means, whether because they already know the word, or whether because they would look it up because people look up words, or whether because the rest of the paragraph does indicate what it is, based on flashes of Las Vegas shooting, medical examiner telling the death, you figure out what it means. And so the, the author is trusting the reader to be smart enough to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And I so appreciate that. And I think that is the mark of a truly gifted writer. It's subtle. It's well-written. It's, it's excellent. Another example. I lay a piece of paper on the table that Mona and I had salvaged from the Flores eviction and uncapped my pen. Dear Zoe, I began. Notice that she did not explain who Mona is. What the heck is the Flores eviction? What is her connection to the eviction and Mona's connection to the eviction? I have no idea. The author did not explain, which is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. This is a perfect example of an inherently non-intriguing curiosity seed that the author has planted. And from now on, my brain is going to look out for mentions of Mona and look out for mentions of the Flores eviction, not because it's necessarily, you know, bombastically tied to the plot, but because I want to figure out who she is and what her place is in the world and who the people are in her life. And so this is me playing playing the game that the author has crafted. This is me putting the pieces of the puzzle, puzzle together. This is me also being a cruci verbalist. So I love the lack of explanation. That is excellent. I also love the cat. His name is Taco. And I just love the cat. The cat is very cute. There's an insight... So when she's at the hospital, she talks about the decor and there's a line that says, I imagine it reassures the family of the dying. The patients can't be fooled. That's such a great insight. And I loved it so much. There's also something which is very important in her life, which is the character fantasizing. And it only takes a second. It only takes, I think, one line, two lines. My mother brain imagines you next to him in a white dress, the dark haired babies you could make. Him is the doctor. You would move back for good. We would agree that you had a much better choice in husbands this time around. I would babysit your children. A, that is what people do, not just mothers, but anyone, when they have an invested stake in someone else's life. They try to imagine better futures for that person. So in terms of nailing human nature, it's perfect. But also, it tells me about, it tells me that she's been married before, and that, that didn't go well. It tells me that the mom, you know, is eager for grandchildren. It tells me that the daughter doesn't have children. Like, it tells me so much through inner life in a way that is subtle and fantastic and just excellent. My only note, and it's only a note because I am reading and I can't help but offer notes, is that because we are only in the protagonist's mind, I was super curious to see, to know what the daughter was thinking too. And of course, you can't head up, do not do that. But there's a line that says, that's a perk you say, I won't ever have to pee every five minutes and I won't sag. Now, that could have been said casually, almost flip, flippantly, you know, like, and maybe the protagonist can tell that it's a faux flippant that, you know, because she's her mom and she knows that, you know, she, the daughter's just trying to be strong for her benefit. The daughter's always been like this, always been the kind to make jokes. Or no, or maybe she doesn't sound casual and funny. Maybe she sounds placid and, and calm. And maybe she could think about, you know, how, how is it that she raised this daughter who has such a different emotionality than she does since she's the kind of person who runs after doctors and threatens to sue. So I would love that very brief glimpse, which of course you can pull off because you can write so well, tucked into that dialogue because I think it could inform us about the daughter and also about the mother-daughter relationship. So I must read this. Please, please, please send me a full now, like right now, right this second. 
yeah, by the time you listen to this, if you even listen to this, I will already have reached out to you because this is so great and I am so excited and I will stop gushing now. Well, there you have it. It's not often that happens, so it's wonderful when when it does. So thank you for that, Cece. To the writer, congratulations. I'm sure you are doing a happy dance right now in the kitchen, in the grocery aisle, in the car. Right, so that's it from today's Books with Hooks. Let's go to today's guest. Hi everyone, it's Cece. Question, what do all great stories have in common? They make us feel, which is why the ability to weave emotion into a story is so important. With that in mind, I'm teaching a class called Writing Emotion, weaving emotion into your story on June 2nd. Join me to learn about active emotions versus passive emotions when to show and when to tell regarding emotionality, the most common mistakes and challenges in writing emotions, and how to turn them into successes. We'll cover techniques on how to effectively convey emotion in a way that keeps the reader turning the pages of a story with lots of examples from some amazing books. And of course, we'll have time for a Q&A session. Writers of all genres are invited to attend, as knowing how to weave in emotion is a superpower useful for all storytellers. For information on how to register, please head over to my Instagram or Twitter page, click on the link in my bio, and follow the instructions. And don't worry, if you're busy on June 2nd, the class will be recorded, and a recording will be sent to everyone who is registered 24 hours later. I hope to see you there. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. 
It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of a one hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. And then you've all been asking me for another writing group matchup or a beta reader matchup. And so I've decided to do the great beta reader matchup. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, look under the beta reader tab to get more information about how to sign up for that. Today's guest's debut novel, Olympus, Texas, out from Doubleday, was a Good Morning America book club selection and indie next pick and was long listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. She holds an MFA from Texas State University and was a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. Her writing has appeared in Lit Hub, Electric Literature, Texas Highways, Epoch and other journals. She splits her time between Austin and Lampasas, Texas, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Stacy Swan. Stacy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Bianca. It's wonderful to be here. I, Stacy, prepare for major, major fangirling. So for our listeners, what normally happens is that publishers, publicists reach out and they tell us what's coming up you know, with regards to their books and, and we decide which authors to have on the podcast. And I never heard from Stacey's publicist on this, but everyone on Bookstagram was raving about this book and people know how I feel about Bookstagrammers. If a Bookstagrammer tells me I absolutely have to read something, I go out and I get it. And wow, this book just blew me away. It's probably been one of my favorites that I've read in the last year. And so I reached out to Stacy and I was like, we have got to talk. So Stacy, thank you for joining us. Right. So for our listeners, I want to give you just a bit of an understanding of the flap copy before we dive into this. The Briscoe family is once again the talk of their small town when March returns to East Texas two years after he was caught having an affair with his brother's wife. His mother, June, hardly welcomes him back with open arms. Her husband's own past affairs have made her tired of being the long-suffering spouse. Is it perhaps time for a change? Within days of March's arrival, someone is dead, marriages are upended, and even the strongest of alliances are shattered. In the end, the ties that hold them together might be exactly what drag them all down. 
An expansive tour de force, Olympus, Texas, cleverly weaves elements of classical mythology into a thoroughly modern family saga, rich in drama and psychological complexity. After all, at some point, don't we all wonder, what good is this destructive force we call love? Now, for our listeners, you'll know that on the show, you know, we we often talk about the difference between quiet novels and novels that have a lot happening, and we've discuss the differences between literary fiction and genre fiction. And literary fiction tends to be more character studies, not as much happening as what happens in genre fiction. What Stacey has done in literary fiction is make it so plot-driven and page-turning and compelling, but also an amazing character study. Now, this does not happen very often, which is why this book is so, so special. So, Okay, Stacey, I'm going to stop fawning and now we'll move on to the question part of this interview. Right, so in this book, you've transformed Greek gods and goddesses into regular mortals living in modern day Texas. So Artie is meant to be Artemis and Ryan is meant to be Orion. Can you talk to us about using this kind of scaffolding of an outside structure or extended metaphor? Absolutely. It is one of the things that I love most about writing. I have always, since I first started writing short stories and was back getting my MFA, like I loved these stories that were also like an elaborate metaphor for something else or being able to take scaffolding from some other idea and and change it into fiction. Even, you know, as a reader all through my life before that, I've always loved retellings where they take a story that you think you know. I remember in college I read Wide Sargasso Sea, which takes the character from Jane Eyre of the mad wife up in the attic and gives her a full story. And I don't know, it also speaks, I think, to what I love about literature, right, which is you know, having empathy in places you you may not expect to, or having to revise what you think of a person. So anyway, as I'm writing, I really like using that scaffolding. And it feels like a puzzle to me of like, okay, I know I want to use Greek myth. I know I want to make these characters seem like plausible modern day Texans, you know, not immortal, not having any special powers. How can I still evoke them without leaning on those things that we think, uh, you know, are, are most normal in classic mythology. And so that's where the idea came from and and it's what I really enjoy and I went through a period where I worried maybe I should be writing more organically. I had read Robert Olin Butler's book, From Where You Dream, which is a really great craft book about capturing yearning in your fiction and just kind of writing out of that, I think he calls it the white hot center of your unconscious. And I was like, maybe all this puzzle making and and scaffolding using is like too much of my conscious brain and not enough of my subconscious. And and I tried to write without it for a while. And, And I think it results in good work when I do that. But I just can't deny that like what I love most is really that fun puzzle aspect of of building a fictional world. Yeah. And for the readers, it's so much fun as well, because as readers, you know, and we've said this before on the podcast, what makes readers actively engaged in a story as opposed to a passive consumer of a story is them forming theories, them trying to figure out what's going to happen, them taking clues and going, aha, I know what's happening, etc, etc. So that creates such active participation on the part of the reader, which makes them super, super invested. Now, I know this took you 15 years to write. And in a few questions time, I do want to look at your journey to publication, because I always find that so fascinating. But let's Let's talk about the actual process 
of writing a book like this? You know, did you come up with this idea and then you sat down and mapped it out and plotted the whole thing, figuring out which gods you were going to be using, etc. How long did that take before you begin writing or was it something you were doing as you were writing? I'm really fascinated to know how you approached it. Yeah, I definitely did not plot it all out from the beginning. I I came to writing the novel from a background of short story writing. And for my short stories, I always just started writing and let the story tell me what it's about. And, And that felt really satisfying to me. And so I started the novel process doing this. What I learned eventually, I think, which a lot of people, this will sound familiar to you, is that you can't really always take that path in a novel because novels are so long that you don't have the luxury of writing 500 pages to figure out what your story is and then scrapping the 500 pages and starting over. But in the beginning, it actually started, a friend of mine had a competition amongst writer friends that was very much like NaNoWriMo, but it was during the summer. And she was like, all right, we're gonna take a month. Everybody's gonna work on a novel project. Whoever gets the most amount of words wins, you know, with ideally it being that kind of 30 something thousand, or to, I'm forgetting now what the NaNoWriMo total is. That's 50,000 words. 50,000, 50, right. So the person who, who won the contest did get more than 50,000 words. I got, I'm trying to remember, like maybe 20,000 or 15,000, which was huge for me. I had never written that quickly. And it really allowed me to get out of my own way. So I just kind of started writing, had the idea, just threw in whatever Greek gods felt good on, on that day. And that very first draft, it was like 70 double space pages, it almost none of it survived to make it in the final novel, except I think that first page is still the same. Somehow that's the thing that stayed all that time. And in that draft, I was even using the actual names of the Greek gods, not other character names. And and so that's where it started. And then I, I worked with that for a while. And then around that time, I went to Stanford for, for the Stegner Fellowship, and they let you audit classes for free there. So I audited an undergraduate class on mythology, and that also kind of helped give me ideas for, for which characters I wanted to pick. But in the end, it sorted itself out pretty easily because I was thinking about a nuclear family, and so it kind of narrows you in to like Zeus and Hera, their children, and then anyone in their immediate orbit. Yeah. Yeah. And the great thing for our listeners about this book is even if you don't know anything about mythology, it doesn't matter. This stands alone so well, you know, even if you're completely oblivious to that kind of thing, you will still love this novel. In fact, it makes it even, you know, kind of more like, whoa, what is happening here? Because you don't, you know, have the mythology kind of informing your understanding of what's going on. So, Let's talk about your journey to publication, because this is your debut novel, which really blew me away to have this kind of work as your debut novel. But then, you know, I saw in, a, in an interview, you said it took you 15 years and then, OK, that makes sense. So so can you take us through all of that, including you know, finding your agent, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's that, that, you know, the nice thing about it taking you so long by society standards to get to your debut novel is I have been writing seriously, focusing, you know, primarily on my writing for 20 years by that point. Right. So I had a lot of, a lot of things that helped me become a better writer over that time, you know, write better sentences. I worked as a freelance editor quite often. So by that point, like I had read so many novels that I started to understand novel structure better. And I think that 
that allowed me to have a novel with better pacing than I would have written, you know, 10 years ago. The pacing is also, I have to admit, helped greatly by my wonderful editor, Lee Boudreaux at Doubleday. She is a genius and she really helped me kind of figure out how to make the second half fly much better than it was flying before. So yeah, I worked on the novel for a very long time. I'm lucky to have lots of beta readers, lots of friends who are also writers that I exchange with. So I, a lot of eyes had been on the book before I finally went out to look for an agent. And, you know, that process was, I mean, in some ways I feel lucky because I know a lot of brilliant writers that that agent search, you know, has taken them a year or more. So mine felt rough, but it was about three, three and a half months. And I, I queried, I'm trying to think about 40 agents, I think, in that time. And I... The very, I, at first, I sent out five to my like top five dream picks, and I gave that a couple of weeks. And, and in that five was Nicola Raghi, who is who is my agent now, and she was one of my dream agents. But I didn't think I was like, oh, she's so big. There's just there's no way that she'll want it. And I didn't hear back from her, you know, within the eight weeks. So I'm like, oh yeah, you know that tracks. I'm not surprised by that. And I'm sending out to other people. And then all of a sudden, you know, three months later, I get an email from Nicole's assistant, and she says, hey, is this novel still available? It fell through the cracks. Nicole hadn't read it. She's just started reading it and she's really excited, but she wants to see if it's still available. And I said, yes, it is still available. So in a way, I felt really grateful that it, it took a few months, you know, because it gave gave me the time to have that manuscript show back up. And so, yeah, and then Nicole wanted to represent it, which was just a dream. It was so thrilling to get that call. And, and how long did you and Nicole work on it before it went out on submission? Because I know, judging by, you know, your editor's letter at the beginning of the advanced reader copy, it sounds like there was a lot of interest and it was quite competitive. So how, how long did you and, you know, your agent work on it before you decided it was ready to send out? So, so actually not long at all. We just did a really quick pass. And, and I think the main reason for that was that my agent has a very specific strategy for selling books. She's very interested in foreign sales as well as the American sale. So she tends to take her books out either right before the Frankfurt Book Festival or right before the London Book Fair because she says people get really excited and there's many more auctions that happen if you do your timing right. So she said to me when, when she had you know taken me on as a client, she was like, we can either do a real quick pass on edits, you know, give you a couple weeks to clean a couple things up that she had noticed and send off so we're in time for Frankfurt, or we can take six months, you know, and if there's more that you want to do, wait and, and do it before London. And she felt confident that it was ready to go out in Frankfurt. And I, of course, you know, had waited so long at that point. I was like, oh no, let's do it now. So yeah, so we did a quick turnaround with edits and... Yeah, and she sent it out and we got, in the end, I think we had, I had conversations with six editors and Doubleday wound up buying it in a preempt. So it didn't go to, to auction. And I was super excited about that because I didn't, you know, even as a writer, like I think we often don't know the names of editors as much. And so I didn't know a ton of editors, but I did know Lee Boudreau because she had edited so many books that I adored, like The Sisters Brothers and Less by Andrew Sean Greer and Red Clocks by Lenny Zumas. So yeah, when, when Doubleday was the one that offered the preamp, I was super excited. Yeah, boy, when you get offered, you know, a deal by an editor who's edited those kinds of books, you are like, 
Hell yeah, I'm on board. Right, so what I find interesting is you said the opening pages were originally the opening pages. And for me, it's always interesting what stays in the novel, what stays, but what shifts, what gets cut, what, you know. And it's not often that something stays in the exact place it was. And I actually want to do start with the opening. If you don't mind, I'm going to just read a page of it for our listeners so that they can get a sense of it. And then I I kind of want to discuss your stylistic approach to it. So here we go. Drive down in the dark, in the fog, thick white against the headlights and the windshield. The world without form and without shape. Follow the sound of gravel grinding under tires as it slips and shifts. Smooth and quiet means you're headed into the ditch. Cross over metal pipes, the thump, thump, thump of the cattle guard. Downhill into the bottom land, the gritty crunch now covered by the bawling of frogs and cicadas. Stop the car. Wait. The sun will rise and burn the land into relief. When morning comes, the view is a tangle of trees and underbrush. Burr oak and cedar elm, pecan and supple jack, poison oak and mustang grapevines. Not a hiking forest, but scratchy impenetrability, like a ten-acre fence gapped only by this dirt road. Cow pastures lie somewhere near in this border between oak savannas and gulf prairies, but here is just a small clearing with a large white house guarded by a sextet of cottonwoods. Wind lifts the cotton from the trees and it snows down on the house, two stories with four large columns careening up the front, broken in the middle by a spindle railing and balcony. Windows peep from the gabled roof, Bermuda grass covers the lawn, interrupted by square flower beds lined out with railroad ties, the smell of roses and creosote. And then it carries on for a bit and then it goes, and inside the house, Peter and June in their bed, old and brassed, columned like their home. And then we go into the description of the bed and then we come to the people. And it is such an interesting beginning because you can see the camera panning right it's like a film you've got the camera above and it's it's on this sort of wide angle and then it starts zooming in zooming in zooming in through the window as we look at this couple how did you know that this was the approach you wanted to take to to the opening yeah I think that it was it was a few things so the the very first page what I had decided to do like as again help with my kind of scaffolding as I wrote the novel is I was leaning on Ovid's Metamorphosis which is you know this great collection that has a lot of different myths in it so not everything I used you can find in in Ovid but there's a lot of overlap and so I found you know in Metamorphosis the scene that's kind of like the world creation story for Greek mythology and I wanted to find a way to evoke that so that's why it's like dark and then the sun comes up and you can kind of see what's there so that helped me get started I think you're exactly spot on about the long shot zooming in I think I you know I love books, but I love movies almost as much as I love books. And I feel like that has really shaped my prose style and probably a lot of people's, right? Because we all watch a lot of of TV and movies now. And so like, I think that's why I often write in present tense, because that feels more like film. And so, you know, it's a big shot, it zooms in. And the other thing that I always keep in mind, because I worked for American Short Fiction, which is a literary journal for a long time, so you're reading a ton of stories that come in. And what I noticed very early on is that one of the most important things you want as you're sitting down to start a new story or a new book 
is you want to be grounded right away that until you feel grounded and you know where you're at and you know what you're looking at, nothing sticks, right? You just feel kind of at sea. And I think years of seeing how important that was makes me always, when I start something new, think about like, how can I get someone to feel like they are fully embodied in this world as quickly as possible? And, and I think a long shot that zooms in is really helpful with that as well. If you start with a close up, you're always trying to get your bearings about what else is around you before you feel completely comfortable. Yeah, not many writers can can pull this off, beginning with setting like this. You know, it's for me, generally, I begin something like this and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. This is what shit looks like. Let me just get where are the people? What's happening with the people? But it just there was something about this that grabbed me immediately, which which doesn't happen for me often with with this kind of beginning. And of course, the language is beautiful and it's so evocative. And, you know, for our listeners, they're always saying, you know, what's literary fiction compared to this and that? It's this kind of beautiful language. It's just it reads like poetry and it starts off this lovely, slow, lush imagery and then shit really heats up boy and things are happening all over the place and there are scenes in this book and I don't want to give anything away that just had me biting my nails and holding my breath and turning pages and being like oh my god no 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 so you know so don't be fooled by this kind of slow intro to to everything so in terms of your struck and point of view you've written in that feels like a very omniscient narrative beginning but after that we've got third person close in present tense you know the chapters alternate from different characters perspective in the third person really close to them and then interspersed in with the modern day sort of or the present day story you've got what you call the origin of so it'll be the origin of March's rages the origin of June's rages and it took me a while and then I was like Stacy you smart woman, you, what, this is backstory, damn it. What you've got here is backstory, but you're shaping it as the origin story. And you do it in like a dual kind of timeline narrative, but it doesn't feel like backstory. So let's talk about the genius of that. Oh, well, I'm so, so happy to hear that worked for you. I, you know, like I was definitely aware it was, was backstory. And because of that, I kept waiting for someone to tell me I had to take it out of the novel. So I, I waited for my beta readers to be like, you know, you don't really need this. Uh, and then I waited for my agent to be like, all right, let's cut all these before we send it out. And then I waited for my editor to say like, okay, like when we're, we need to pare this down, the link's a little long, here's, we're going to focus. So it was really delightful to find that nobody told me that. And I think that you know, there's a lot of reasons for it. And, and I think there's a reason why we should be kind of careful about backstory. Because in general, readers are invested in the present day story. And if you stray from that for too long, it is, it's not satisfying to the reader. And so I, I was mindful of that. And one of the things I tried to do is cut them down, you know, to, to the ones that really had the biggest impact. So there were several scenes that were in, you know, earlier drafts that wound up on the, on the cutting room floor. And then when I thought about where to put them in the novel, I always thought about like, okay, what I want this backstory to do is to either make the reader stop and think, oh, I've misjudged this character this is new information I have to take in because I think that's some of the, it's like the most fun thing as a reader to be like, oh, no, I'm wrong about this character. There's actually something else going on. So I wanted it to either do that or I wanted it to really amplify the tension of the existing plot line. So I think that that's when we think about backstory, 
not being necessary. It's because it's not amplifying tension or it's not complicating your view of the characters. Um, so that's what I really was hoping those did. But they did come out of, I got stuck in the novel as I was drafting it, wasn't quite sure where the plot was going. And I decided to stop and do a lot of character sketches to focus on the earlier years of the family to kind of figure out why they were in the place that they were at, why everyone was behaving so badly, basically. And so they were originally just for me, and some of them came out as full scenes. And then I just wound up falling in love with some of them, and they they stayed in the novel. They made it through somehow. What you've said there is is so integral because this is the thing with backstory. People are like, oh, but I like backstory. I'm going to keep it in there. But like you say, if it's not complicating our view of the character or amplifying something in the present day narrative, then it's not doing the work. And you would tease at something and we would then form an opinion on this character based on it. And then suddenly, like you say, boom, we get that origin story of why the character is the way they are and suddenly we become a lot more sympathetic towards them we change our view on them you know March especially we see him having these kind of rages and and we see him struggling with them he has these blackout rages and he does these things and you feel for his mother in terms of you know what he's putting her through and then you know we start to understand why he is this way and it really it just this is the kind of character study you know it adds to the character study in terms of this novel being a character study and an absolute page turner because when we understand you know why a character is the way they are etc it just adds so much complexity to the present day story so that we understand their struggles so much more and we're rooting for them so much more so I really thought that was amazing and you know I can understand why it was kept in so for our listeners when we're going oh this backstory doesn't serve anything it's slowing things down that is the biggest problem with backstories it slows the pacing down but you've really got to read Stacy's book to see how these origin stories actually you know create more tension in the story as opposed to taking away tension we're almost at the end of our time Stacy. for our listeners do you have advice for the people who are perhaps in that 15 years where they're busy plugging away especially in terms of how did you know when it was time to start querying because that's something we get a lot how do you know when you're done and and any advice you have for our listeners Yeah, I was lucky in that, you know, working for so many years as a freelance editor and and also a teacher, you know, I saw a lot of people go through the querying process. And so it was really clear to me, like, better to wait a little too long than go too soon, that that you only get one shot with your your top agents and you want to send to your top agents first. And you don't want to waste that shot with things that you really could fix if you just knew they were there. I am a huge proponent of outside readers. I don't know. I know that there are people that manage to revise without them. I think they're aliens. I don't know how they do that because it is impossible. We are so trapped in our own heads. It is impossible to know how our books are reading to other people. And it's impossible to know if what we intended is actually coming through. So I don't even think like you don't need other readers to kind of fix the problems that are like inherently wrong. It's like the readers are there to show you where your intent is not yet coming through to them so that you can honor that intent you had when you wrote the novel. So I, what I did is I made it, it took me a long time even to make it to the end of the first draft really, like maybe like seven or eight years, because I just kept stopping and, and walking away from it. And then at a certain point, I told myself like, 
you have to finish this book and, and revise it at least once because all these problems that you're having right now, you're going to have them with the next book too. But if you prove to yourself you can do it and you can finish and you can revise, even if this book is not good enough to send out, even if it goes in a drawer, you will be in a much better place. Otherwise, I could totally see myself spending, you know, 30 years, you know, half writing five different novels and never sending any of them out. So once I made that promise to myself that I would finish it no matter what, it became a lot easier to give it the time that it needed. So I finished the draft, did a full revision, you know, trying to to make it, you know, as good as I could make it, you know, and that took a couple years. Then I gave it to my writing group and, and a couple other friends. They gave me feedback. I also gave it to one agent who had seen like something I had online and was interested in seeing the early draft. And she wound up not taking the novel, but she gave me really great editorial feedback on that early draft. Then I took another year and a half or so to do another revision. And I just want to tell all your listeners, it does not necessarily have to take that long. That was because I avoid writing as much as I, I do write. And also, you know, had uh, teaching schedules can really eat up your free time too, and your writing brain. And then I did a whole new set of readers. So I think like, and I learned this as an editor, once you read something once and give feedback, if you're reading the revision, it is really hard to read that fresh as if, you know, you can't give yourself amnesia and it clouds your take on the novel. So I tried to give it in that next round to, to all new readers. I think I had one who read both for me, who's a really trusted reader for me, and then incorporated that feedback as well before. And then at that point, I had resent it to that initial agent. She read it and passed on it. So I had to take about six weeks to think about like, okay, is there something still really wrong? Cause she was excited about the book and then she didn't want it. But I looked at it and I was like, no, I think this is ready. This feels like what I want it to be. And that's when I went ahead and took took the leap and queried the agents. So yeah, it took took a while. I do not think it needs to take as long as I took, but you know, it worked it worked fine for me in the end. And lessons learned there is remember how subjective it is. So, you know, one agent will pass on it, someone else will freaking love it. And what Stacy was describing there is kind of the writing equivalent of the yips. So people who play golf know you sometimes get the yips when you address the ball you you know feel too anxious to actually hit it or you're overthinking it you're too much in your head and I know a lot of writers who begin tons of books they've begun 10 books but they've never finished them for for this exact reason so I think this is a great exercise to you know challenge yourself to to finish something to prove to yourself that you can Stacy, what a joy getting to chat to you we wish you you know much success with the paperback release of Olympus Texas for our listeners we're going to put it on our bookshop.org affiliate page get it read it study it it's it's really such such a phenomenal book and we hope to have you back again Stacy for your next one I would absolutely love that and I'm I'm really planning for it not to take 12 to 15 years for the next one um and thank you so much for having me it was just a really wonderful conversation and that's it for today's episode I hope you'll join us for next week's show in the meantime keep at it remember it just takes one yes Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up.
This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.